I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I continue talking about how to read New Testament letters. I'm standing here in my office on an absolutely gorgeous day. Hopefully I'll get out a little bit later, sit in the sun or take a walk in the woods. And I am holding in my hand a brand new book by my very good friend, Max Botner. It's called Beyond the Greek New Testament, Advanced Readings for Students of Biblical Studies. Uh, it's published by Baker Academic and it's um, just a, a really nice looking volume. I was uh, a colleague of Max's for three years. We taught together at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. Um, Max now teaches New Testament at William Jessup University in California. And uh, for three years, as Max and I were teaching together, he was working on this book, and it has turned out wonderfully. It's basically for, um, for people who can read the Greek New Testament and want to sort of branch out and grapple with other ancient Greek texts, including the Septuagint, Apostolic Fathers, Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, and a bunch more, Philo and Josephus. Uh, I think he gets into classical Greek as well. And uh, it's a really well thought out volume. I mean, Max gives sort of introductions to various texts and uh, loads of helps for, for translating. So um, if you want, if, if you read the Greek New Testament and want to keep studying ancient Greek, check out Max Botner's book. It is, it, it's a very handsome volume, came together really well. And Max is just an all around fantastic person. I'm recording this on a Monday, and I spent the last several days uh, watching the Open Championship, which took place at Royal Liverpool, and uh, it was just a lot of fun to watch. I there are, there are four golf tournaments a year that I pay very close attention to, the four majors, and um, it's hard to believe that they've switched up the schedule. It used to be that the PGA Championship was held in August. Now it's held in May, which is kind of odd. Um, having the Open Championship, sometimes called the British Open, be um, the last one of the year. We've got to wait all the way till next April when the Masters will be held again. Yeah, I just don't like this new schedule. But I really enjoyed watching um, the golf, and um, uh, Brian Harmon won it. Gutsy performance. I mean, just really won by six shots, which was incredible. And uh, it was a tough course. And uh, the beauty of Lynx course or the difficulty of uh, Lynx golf is that uh, it's played on Lynx courses, which don't have trees to block the wind. And the defense of a Lynx style course is, is the wind. And so when the wind kicks up, um, you know, tee shots can just bounce anywhere and bounce into pot bunkers and all the rest. And saw a few top players just get really stymied. Um, I think Brian Harmon stayed out of, pretty much all the bunkers. I mean, I, he was in two bunkers all week and they were greenside bunkers. I mean, he just played such excellent golf and nobody really ever put any pressure on him. And uh, he just bore down and gutted it out. Good for him. I was really happy for him. He just he just seems like such a, a really cool person. You always love it. I always love cheering on uh, good people. 
while I was watching the golf, I had a couple of breakfast burritos, spoiled myself, and um, I got a takeout. The great thing about the Open Championship is that because it's being held in Britain, it's on in the States in the morning. And so I ran down to Basalt and got myself a burrito and parked myself on the couch and very much enjoyed uh, a burrito with hash browns inside. They've got this green sauce, which is just delicious. It was seriously transcendent. Uh, on Sunday, I got another takeout brunch burrito from from Donkey just down the street, which I, I love going, popping down there to hang out. Donkey Taqueria. Uh, the brunch burrito was not transcendent. Um, it was serviceable and satisfactory, but um, did not sort of uh, excite the kind of wonder and serious delight that the, the breakfast burrito from Basalt inspired. Um, but that's a great way. What a great way to watch golf, pairing together two of my favorite things, breakfast burritos and open championship. It's fantastic. I'm in the middle of uh, teaching Ephesians, which I may have mentioned before at Fuller Seminary, teaching online and really enjoying it. Um, I received a couple of notes asking about uh, what classes I'll be teaching down the road. I think I'm teaching Ephesians again in the winter, like starting in January, I think. Um, but this fall, I'm teaching a course uh, just introducing the New Testament. So if you are interested in auditing that class or taking it for credit, um, check it out. We'd love to have you along for the ride. I'm going to be building that course over the next couple of months. Um, and I believe it starts sometime in September. I don't, I don't know. I don't have a good handle on the schedule just yet. But I've enjoyed uh, this experience um, immensely. It's been a lot of fun. I um, Speaking of sports, I've been watching some clips of Ellie De, De La Cruz, who is the shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds. He is amazing. Uh, it's so fun to watch him play. It's, it's crazy that the Reds are having uh, such a good year. It's really interesting. They've really come on, and they're in second place. They're above 500. They're in second place behind the Brewers. And um, I've watched a bunch of clips of him at bat, him in the field, and he is just amazing to watch. Um, such a great athlete and got such a, just such great spirit. Um, very demonstrative player, which I, I love. For decades, it was sort of an unwritten rule in Major League Baseball that, you're, that nobody be demonstrative or nobody show any kind of emotion whatsoever, or else, you know, if you were a batter, you ran the risk of getting hit to sort of take you down a, a notch, which is just ridiculous. It's it's really cool to see in the last number of years, uh, baseball players being more demonstrative and just having fun. It's it's a great sport. You're supposed to enjoy it. And with uh, with Ellie De La Cruz, my goodness, he is having fun and he's just so fun to watch. It's interesting that uh, at the Great American Ballpark, um, the stands are filled. Like Cincinnati's excited about baseball again, which I I just love to see that. Like, good for them. Yes, they're ahead of the Cubs in the standings, but they very much deserve it. And I I uh, I'm not too partisan when it comes to sports. Just because my heart belongs to the Chicago Cubs doesn't mean I can't be happy for other teams when they do well. And so, just to be watching the Reds having a great year is great. Baseball's better when baseball's good in Cincinnati. 
it's just such a classic baseball town, very much like uh, St. Louis or Chicago. Um, but I mean, the Reds have such a storied history. So to see them doing well, uh, it's just fun. So in talking about New Testament letters, I want to draw out a point that I believe I mentioned in the previous episode, but I'll just state it here. Uh, I want to draw out this point that the New Testament letters are occasional literature. They are occasional texts. And I want to draw out some implications of that because I think this is a really massive thing to understand. Um, and by occasional, I, I don't mean every once in a while. I mean, uh, these are texts that address a specific situation. Most of these letters address situations that have, have arisen um, in, in a church context where you know, an opportunity has come up, uh, some difficulty has uh, arisen or whatever, and a Christian leader needs to address the situation. The reason this is important is because people tend, modern Bible readers tend to read New Testament letters as if they are abstracted statements um, that sort of come from, you know, Paul or Peter or John or James um, are sort of sitting back in their desk in their in their study as, as some sort of a modern theologian would do and are kind of writing on a topic or something like that or writing out a systematic treatise or something like that. Um, that's not the case at all. In almost every case with a, a New Testament letter, something has come up that needs to be addressed. So an apostle or some other Christian leader addresses that situation. Um, I mean, this is the kind of normal pastoral thing that would have happened in thousands of cases in the first Christian generation. And somebody in person would have um, taken care of it, addressed it, confronted it, or met the met the the moment in some way. But it just so happens that in uh, the in in these cases, we actually have a person addressing the situation in letter form, and these are the ones that we have preserved. Uh, we don't have all of the things that um, Paul and Peter and John or James may have written, um, but we've got these ones. So that's what we work with. Uh, oh, just to say also, um, keep in mind that um, letters are a form of social media. They are, they are, a letter is a social medium. That is to say, um, one person is contacting another person or one person is addressing a group of people and um, they're doing it in letter form because they can't do it for whatever reason in person. And so just as uh, social media has a range of dynamics, the social media that we understand in our day has a wide range of dynamics that are not necessarily the same as are taking place when someone is communicating with another person face to face. In the same way, we have these very things happening in with these New Testament documents. So Paul would have preferred to, to head to Galatia or Rome or Corinth or whatever, but because he can't, uh, he writes letters. So these are occasional documents. And I just want to draw out some implications of that. Um, the way that I see the New Testament canonical logic, that is to say we have four gospels and acts, and then we have the Pauline letter collection 
and then what's called you know the general letters or the catholic epistles they're they go by a range of titles um i think the canonical logic is important to recognize that is to say i i in my opinion we ought to consider that the gospels receive priority and the and that the letters are kind of regarded as problem solution documents the way i see it the gospels and acts kind of give the essence of what uh your Christian realities are all about. They, they give us the identity of Jesus and narrative form, the agenda of the kingdom of God, the realities associated with the kingdom of God and how disciples ought to embody those uh, realities and modes of life. That's the story. Those texts give us the story about how the God of Israel um, makes a new move in Jesus. The letters are kind of like counseling documents for when things go off the rails, when when Christian communities that are formed by the preaching of the gospel or by you know consulting one of the gospels or more than one or whatever, when things go off the rails for a Christian community or or when there's a um, uh, some kind of exigency like like I'm just thinking about Philippians where there's suffering, uh, Hebrews is quite a confrontational letter, uh, but whenever there's some kind of issue that arises, we get a letter. So um, I think that's important to state because for many, uh, certainly for many evangelical Christians, but I think this is true, well, this is very true of evangelical Christianity and perhaps for Protestantism more generally, um, people tend to read their Bibles through sort of a Pauline lens. That is, we sort of imagine that like there's a bunch of confusion in different, you know, in the Gospels and then in certainly Hebrews or wherever, but Paul's the one that's clear. We're, we get Paul, and Paul gets us, um, and so and and I think that that's actually a misreading of Paul. Uh, most evangelical people, I think, uh, have a misunderstanding of what Paul is all about. They see him as anti-Jewish, um, see him as sort of laying out a theology for the church or something like that, and um, see him as more of a systematic thinker, whereas the Gospels are more narrative. So uh, the ways that we read our New Testaments, it's like Paul gives the system, Paul gives the theology that we're supposed to believe, and then like the Gospels kind of like give us illustrations, you know, uh, some narratives to kind of fill that in or sort of like how that how that looks. Um, I think that that's a problematic way of regarding our New Testaments. The Gospels are the heart, the Gospels give the story, and the New Testament letters are problem-solving documents. When something goes wrong or when something needs to be addressed, that's what gives rise to a letter. Uh, a related implication of that is that um, almost all the New Testament letters are pastoral documents. They're not sort of works of theology that lay out some kind of a system um, that, uh, you know, even are laying out an unsystematic theology. They're they're pastoral. They're solving problems uh, that that arise in churches. Along that line, uh, New Testament letters are circumstantial and they're not systematic. Uh, it's not the case that a New Testament letter writer is addressing certain topics. Uh, they're not. Um, the, one of the ways that this looks, or I should say, a misunderstanding looks is that Paul's letter to the Romans is regarded as sort of like his magnum opus or his like his systematic theology. That's the first systematic theology. 
um, and then you know Augustine and others do their work down the road, but everything is kind of founded and built on Romans. That's a misreading of Romans. I took some time to talk about Romans a couple of years ago or whenever that was, and um, I read the letter very differently. I'll just say that. Uh, I think it's Romans is a problem solving document um, because in the Roman network of house churches, there's disagreement about what it looks like to be Christian. How should that be embodied and practiced? Does it, does it have to be uh, in relation to a Jewish identity or not for non-Jewish people? And so Paul writes to address that issue. He's not laying out uh, his gospel. He's not writing a systematic theology or anything like that. I think that that's a really unfortunate way of reading Romans. So when Paul mentions things like justification or election or predestination or glorification or whatever, um, he's not anywhere addressing those as topics in the abstract. He's, a, he's making mention of these things as he's confronting communities, um, same in Galatia. And that's important to say because um, if you try to systematize um, Paul's comments about things like justification or righteousness, it's, it, Paul's, I mean, he's got some kind of structure to his thought, but it's not the kind of, uh, um, it's, it, it would not relate well to sort of a systematic theology. It can inform one, perhaps I'm not a big fan of systematic theology. It's not my discipline. Um, but I think we get off the rails when we imagine that Paul is doing something like addressing this topic of theology or that topic of theology. This is one of the reasons I just really think it's so problematic when Bible translators um, put headings in sections of our of um, of biblical texts because it gives us the illusion that here Paul is addressing topic X or the writer to the Hebrews is addressing topic Y. And that's just not what's happening when these people write letters to communities. I mentioned this um, last week, but these letters were meant to be read aloud and to be heard by groups. And the texts say of like First Corinthians or Ephesians or Hebrews, these texts comprise a whole message. That is the message that the writer of Hebrews wants to give to the Christian community that he's addressing. Um, the message is the whole letter. And I think that we have to keep this in mind when we, when if you're a Bible teacher or a pastor or a group leader or whatever, um, we can sometimes imagine that we are going more in depth into a text, that we are really studying this thing in depth when we go, quote unquote, verse by verse. But I think that that raises the question, um, I mean, recognizing that New Testament letters are meant to be, uh, the message is sort of one whole. Uh, I think that raises the question about whether we're treating text rightly when we do that. Certainly, I mean, this makes sense when it comes to the Gospels, like there are episodes and pericopes. Um, but in New Testament letters, I, I tend to think well, we're not, not really studying these things right. Um, if we just go so slowly through them. And I find that uh, that's one way of sort of missing the forest for the trees. And I did mention this last week along this line, but um, 
because these are messages that are heard by groups, when we think about embodying Christian identity, when we think about performing Christian discipleship, I think we need to think in terms of we, what do we need to do to respond to this text rather than me? What do I need to do to respond to this text? There's something, again, unnatural about an individual holding a Bible and reading it, you know, by herself or himself. That's, that's in terms of what's happening in the first century, the way that New Testament letter writers wrote these things, they are thinking of groups and the use when, when writers address their audiences, they are thinking they are writing in you plural, not you singular. This is, um, there are a couple exceptions to this in the New Testament. Certainly Philemon, those yous are singular because Paul is speaking to Philemon in that letter. Um, but keep in mind there again, he addresses the whole church. That's a letter that would have been read by Tychicus or whoever was carrying it. That would have been read in the presence of the whole community because Paul greets all the other or a bunch of the other members of the community. But it would have been addressed to Philemon in that context. And then um, community is all is also at the end of that letter because he Paul sends greetings from, you know, Mark is with him, I believe, when he writes that, Timothy. And I think Luke is there with him when he writes to Philemon. So again, people raised, and that's all of us, in a highly individualistic setting uh, with, with an individualistic uh, conception of, of life and uh, Christian discipleship, we have, to do, we have to do a lot of work to sort of get ourselves out of that mindset. I know it's a, it's a constant for me. Another implication of New Testament letters being occasional literature is that they are ad hoc exhortations. They're commanding specific communities to, to take specific action given specific situations. These are ad hoc exhortations. That is, they are to the situation. Um, they're, not, they're not timeless instruction. And, and the way that we um, sort of access these texts and think through being Christian in light of them, we got to keep that in mind. Again, the, the, the heart of the New Testament is the Gospels and Acts, the way that they portray the reality of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Um, these texts are texts that are directed to communities that are supposed to grapple with the message that they receive and you know pray through that and discuss and maybe argue with the person doing the reading of this text because that person who was reading the text aloud would have been with the author and so could provide further elaboration um, on what Paul or John or Peter or the writer to the Hebrews was intending. Um, I just think of, along this line, I remember, I remember my friend Mike, uh, who is a pacifist, and I, we were having lunch one day and he was telling me about this young guy that I think he was a teenager, late teens, and just really struggling to kind of figure things out. Life was uh, chaotic. He had made some bad decisions and, and was in need of order and structure in his life. And I'll never forget when Mike, um, he said, what do you think I told him? And I was like, what? I have no idea. What'd you tell him? He's like, you'll never guess. I told him that it would be a good idea if he joined the military. 
Now, Mike discerned that this guy, um, you know, late teens, loads of chaos and bad behavior, uh, needed order and discipline in his life. And it would be a good thing for him to join the military, even though Mike was a pacifist, is a pacifist. And um, it would be, it'd be wrong for me to take away from that conversation. Um, like, doggone Mike. Um, Mike is a military supporter. He's, you know, he's, he's in favor of um, our national leaders, foreign policies, and he, he's a warmonger or something like that. That's not at all the case. But this is, this is what I'm saying uh, when I get at ad hoc exhortations. I mean, Mike was giving ad hoc advice to this young guy. Look, it'd be, you know, given everything. I don't necessarily, I don't, not, I don't support the military, but you will find in that uh, context some order and structure that would be good for you as an individual. But it'd be wrong, like I'm saying, um, for us to imagine that that's the, that's the advice that Mike would give to all young men who are 19 in every situation. He was giving ad hoc advice. And in the same way, I think we have, we have to be very careful to reckon with the reality that um, the situations that New Testament letter writers address um, and the things that they tell these communities are not things that would necessarily be appropriate for all communities everywhere. And I'm not sure. I think we have to be very careful to, about following the advice that New Testament letter writers give to those communities. I'm not endorsing you know, just ignoring what Paul has to say or the writer of Hebrews. Um, but there's their counsel has everything to do with the situations they are addressing. Um, it's just one example of this in there's more going on in this text. First Corinthians seven, it seems that Paul discourages marriage in first Corinthians. And then in first Timothy, he condemns those who discourage marriage. So what's the deal there? Well, obviously there's something happening in Corinth and there's more going on in that text in 1 Corinthians 7. And um, the situation is very different when he writes to Timothy. I think we have to keep this in mind when we read, um, when we treat texts like 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, um, passages where Paul gives instructions to the Corinthians with regard to uh, the participation of women in the church gathering. Um, because I mean, he seems to advocate, well, he does advocate women prophesying in the churches. And then in first Corinthians 14, he says that women should be silent. So what's the deal? Well, like I said last week, when I said that we're handling, um, we're, we're, we're grappling with one side of a two-sided conversation and we don't know the other side and we don't know the situation exactly, the exact contours of them in Corinth. So I think we have to be just be very careful when we handle a text like that um, because we don't know all the particulars. And it's a really important question when it comes to uh, that text and First Timothy, uh, where Paul gives instruction to Timothy about um, the conduct of the household of God, that, that is the church. Um, there's a lot that we don't know about the on-the-ground uh, situations that, that were happening. And I think it's a really important question, um, to ask, is Paul giving all time advice for how the church, for, for what should be happening in the church for all time? Uh, 
I've come out, I've come down on the side of saying, no, Paul is addressing the situation. We might not even have all the, the answers to, to arrive at satisfying conclusions right now, but the pattern as we find it in the gospels and acts is that women were participating and even in Paul's life, uh, Nietzsche Gupta's book, um, tell her story is, is great along this line. Um, the pretty consistent pattern in the New Testament is that women were participating fully in um, in in the church, and I think that that ought to be encouraged. Um, along this line, along this line, that is to say, these are ad hoc exhortations; these are ad hoc addresses. Um, it may be uh, that the situation that the the letter to the Hebrews addresses is simply not repeatable. That is to say, um, churches can have struggles and issues just like the Corinthians did, uh, you know, in a, in a modern context. Um, you know, some of Paul's letters and what James has to say, First um, Peter as well, like these texts are, there's a, there's a high degree of relevance. Um, I've wondered if there's something happening with, uh, the situation that the writer of Hebrews addresses that makes that text and the exhortations that are given there and the way that the writer frames it, I, I just think there's just something not repeatable about that. I've benefited a lot from my friend, uh, Carl Mosier's doctoral work. Um, he came up with an interpretation of the situation in Hebrews that I find really satisfying, very interesting. Uh, I don't think he's ever published that anywhere. Um, but he argues that um, the letter to the Hebrews is actually written from Rome to the Jerusalem church. It's, there's a, a leader from the Jerusalem church is, has traveled to Rome and has heard about something going on back at the Jerusalem church. And um, it has to do with a prophecy that has been given to the Jerusalem church and uh that the city is going to be destroyed and that the church should flee the city and go north to Pella, which is, which is really interesting. It's, it's fascinating how Carl puts this together and um, they've received this prophecy uh, from the one speaking to them from heaven, which kind of puts an interesting twist on that. Uh, is that chapter 13? And um, apparently the church is resisting doing that. They don't want to do it because um, you know, Jerusalem is the city of the great King. This is God's favorite place on earth. Surely he would never let it be destroyed. Um, and not only that, but if they leave and go North, they're going to be disconnected from the temple and the temple is what maintains their connection with God. I mean, that's just so deeply embedded in their imagination. And, um, when you have that in mind, the argument of the letter makes such good sense. Um, the letter is not an anti-Jewish letter. It's not contrasting Judaism with um, Christianity in some way. It's basically saying you, you're afraid, you, the Jerusalem Christian community, you're afraid to leave the city um, because you feel like that's what attaches you to the God of Israel. Um, and that's why the writer of Hebrews goes into the whole you know, discourse about how their connection to Christ connects them to God. And they can actually afford to leave the city and leave it behind um, 
and they're not going to be missing anything. That by virtue of being in Christ, uh, this greater high priest, etc., they have a connection to God that is not going to be shaken loose. Um, interestingly, in light of all that, <clears throat> it's fascinating to read how the writer argues in chapter 11 that so many of like those heroes of faith uh, have left. They left places, even though they didn't know where they were going. It's really interesting. If you um, just have that in mind, read Hebrews. It's really interesting. But my point is this. Um, one of the ways that the writer argues is that he recalls the experiences that that church has had. Like if, if that church is the church that so let's just say like went through Pentecost and they saw all these miraculous things, wild works of power and wonder and all the rest. Um, if after, <clears throat> sorry, if after having all those experiences and now they're going to resist doing what God says to do. Um, this is why the writer says you're, you're not going to have, um, you're not going to have any kind of like greater revelation than that. Um, this is why his warnings are so loaded up. Like if you have been this sort of uniquely blessed to be in this situation, and now you, you turn away from the way of obedience, you're not like it, repentance is impossible because you, you've had experiences that just are so unique. So anyway, just to say, um, I think that, I mean, that's, there's no lock uh, on that interpretation from Carl, but uh, I think it's highly plausible. And, but my main point is just to say that community is in a place that um, they were in a situation and they had experiences that are not really repeatable. So not only is that a Jewish Christian audience, um, but it, but their situation was so unique. So that for, for contemporary readers of Hebrews um, who are in non-Jewish settings, excuse me, I think that um, it's just problematic. There are just, I'll just say this, there are challenges with grappling with that text as, as, um, as Christians who are in a very different situation. So there's a lot we can learn from it. Obviously we can watch a pastoral figure in action dealing with a community. Um, but all these other sort of exceptional situations, I think have to be kept in mind. Well, there's a bit more that I'd like to say about new Testament letters as occasional texts and a bit more that I'd like to say about new Testament letters, but I'll save that for the next episode. It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.